0: hi everyone welcome back to impressionable with me becky lee this week i'm joined by my friend alex greer and we are chatting all things british politics and how and why we should deserve more from our government especially in these unprecedented times i hope you enjoyed the episode, and yeah that's all i have to say have a good one and enjoy the rest of your day week month see you at the end bye <coughs> Hi everyone, welcome back to another episode of Impressionable, where we do our best to figure out the ways in which we have been shaped by the world. This week, I'm joined by Alex Greer.
1: Hello, how are you?
0: I'm good, thanks, yeah, how are you?
1: I'm well, thanks.
0: Good, have you been up to anything exciting this week?
1: Uh, Not much exciting, mainly in the lab. So I'm currently doing a PhD in chemistry, so it's a lot of lab work
0: have you always wanted to do that?
1: Um, I've wanted to do chemistry for a while like maybe from like secondary school but mm-hmm. obviously I also have a, an interest in politics as we're going to be talking about today.
0: Yeah exactly so thank you for your little introduction. Before we talk a bit about politics is there anything else that you'd want the listeners to know about you?
1: N- not particularly I'm sure <laughs> um, <laughs> I'm sure we'll uh, brush you over it in terms of uh, the questions and the answers.
0: Perfect. Well, let's get going then. The first question I ask everyone is what is something that has made an impression on you recently?
1: Yeah, so I've got two answers for this. One is more political, one's non-political. The first one is uh, a policy that I saw recently. So it was in a report by the IPPR, which is a progressive think tank, and it estimated it would cost two point three billion pounds per year to make all bus travel free for everyone, which oh is so low, like relative to the UK's budget, that it seems like a no-brainer to me.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, so if you decide not to make it free but to cap it at one pound, it's estimated to it cost less than one billion a year. So this mm-hmm. is getting into like like really, really low amounts. So it's not that much money for a policy, at worst, would alleviate relative poverty because that's yeah. um, low-income households are the main users of, of buses. Um, but it also gives freedom to those people to live their lives. And um, so at best, it would revolutionise revolutionize how all of us travel. Um, so it's framed as a measure to support low-income households. But it could have untold benefits, such as less congestion on the yeah. uh, on the roads, um, less air pollution from that, leading to fewer respiratory illnesses, leading to less pressure pressure on the NHS. Like you can see, how this is like a chain reaction. Um, and unlike trains, um, we can basically have as many buses as we want. Like it's not limited by the infrastructure there. So I yeah. just think this is a, a great policy. I'll uh, send you the link if you want to. Um, put it in the description or anything like that. But it's really, really, uh, really, really exciting.
0: Yeah, 100%. And also, didn't Liz Truss just, like, waste 20 billion?
1: Yeah. Like, reverse
0: the <laughs> policy? Yeah, yeah. So have- it
1: seems like a lot, but the government's dealing with tens of billions of pounds here
0: yeah i know that's crazy and you're right like it would be transformative i reckon people that um wouldn't usually take public transport as well would have an incentive to take it because duh it's free the price of petrol is ridiculous as well Mm -hmm. yeah yeah
1: so adding to that point um it also factors in more people using the buses in that amount of money so like it they've covered a lot of bases here um but yeah, it, it, I could just say it there's like a really, really good policy. But it seems really radical, but it, it shouldn't be. Other countries have tried things like this and they're yeah. quite successful. Um, so, yeah.
0: I don't understand why if this policy was on my desk, it would be like, go. You know, why is there resistance yeah. to such a policy?
1: I think it's seen as quite radical um, because you're kind of nationalising oh, okay. the busses. Mm -hmm. Um, even if they're not under state ownership. um, They could have franchises like they do in London, but the government is paying for it. Mm -hmm. Um, But it's also, see, there's kind of a backlash against universalism. Um, So in some things, it's quite good that it's means tested so that um, the lowest income households or people get the most help. But Mm -hmm. there's also a lot of bureaucracy behind that. So that's where universal basic income is another Um, policy that's interesting I don't know how much I agree with it in terms of um, implementing it now whether it's more effective the means tested benefits Mm -hmm. Um, but it does have a lot of pros in its um, in its implementation.
0: Yeah 100% I remember um, an essay that I did on welfare states and a lot of the times the most successful ones are the ones that can really capture the middle and upper classes Like if they have incentive to contribute to it, then the welfare state is so much better because they don't find ways to opt out. So they like, don't, they want, you know what I mean? I feel like that bus thing could potentially do that as well.
1: Yeah. And it's kind of, it removes the stigma against taking buses. I don't know how much Mm. this is a thing in like cities, but like it's seen as a middle-class and definitely upper-class thing to own your own car, own your own vehicle. Um, a big vehicle at that in, in a lot of cases. Um, but it's similar to like in the US, they look down upon train travel because um, it's just not really a thing over there. Yes, you've got um, Amtrak on the east and west coast. Um, but like, if you are middle class, you do not take the train, you just fly. It It's sometimes a lot cheaper as it is in the UK for in a lot of cases. Um, but if we did the same thing to train travel as we do with to bus travel um you might see a lot more people using it and yeah I think it could be really really revolutionary
0: amazing so what was the other thing that's been making an impression on you
1: so the other thing is an album I've listened to recently um so I've been really getting into into music um before university I didn't really used to listen to music which is a bit weird um but as time's gone on I'm getting really invested in different um different artists, different producers as well. Um, so the album that I've made an impression on me is Titanic Rising by Wiseblood. And it's it was released in 2019 and she's got an album coming out this year. Um, so I decided to go back to her previous work. And I just think it's like really, really grand and it's just really, really nice to listen to. So I've got... Um, some really nice headphones that I got as a gift a couple of years ago. And when you put those on and listen to this album, it's just really, really, really nice. Um, and its lyrics also have overtures to the climate crisis. So it's like politically aware as well. Um, maybe not the most uplifting album. I don't play it as like a <laughs> kind of uh, uplifting um, like exercise type album, but it is really, really good.
0: That's amazing. I will also put that in the show notes so that everyone can listen to it. We bonded over our mutual love of Wolf Wolf Alice as well. So yeah,
1: yeah, (laughs) yeah, yeah. I really enjoyed. uh, I I I think we both went to see them um, earlier this year.
0: It was honestly an out-of-body experience. I was crying for about a week afterwards. Something happened to me in that Mm -hmm. concert, (laughs) honestly. It's crazy. Uh cool. So let's get into the proper bulk of the podcast. Yep. The main reason I bought you on is because you're very politically aware. Um and you know, as a member of the Labour Party, I feel like it's good to first just kind of give context to where we're both we're both very left wing. Um and obviously not, we're not claiming to be the experts on these things, but we're allowed to have our own hot takes. So I wanna know from like the beginning not from the beginning, but we've just had a new prime minister come in. What do you see the state of play as now? Like, where are we Where are we up to now? What's gone on? How have we got here?
1: Yeah, so obviously the Conservatives want to paint themselves as a brand new government. They've got a brand new leader. This is all fresh and new. Um, but fundamentally, we've had the same government in one form or another since 2010. Um, so that's 12 years of the same Austerity government basically. Um, And I think people, especially now, underestimate the importance of austerity, especially between 2010 and 2015, um, in how our society currently functions. And the actions of Cameron and his Chancellor Osborne, um, the chief architects of this austerity program, have seemingly been lost to memory.
0: Um, Mm -hmm. And I
1: think there's a number of reasons for this. Um, The first is just how chaotic it's been. Like, there's the old uh, um, adage that chaos with Ed Miliband in 2015, um, which really, really, really angers me. And then we had Brexit, then 2017 and 19 under Corbyn, or uh, the Labour Party under Corbyn, I should say. Then we had COVID. So it seems like such a long time ago. In many ways, it is in terms of people's political and social consciousness. But fundamentally, our services are underfunded the NHS for example, the councils are underfunded which a lot of people don't necessarily realise but that affects things all around you whether that's libraries, whether that's youth clubs, a lot of these things are really good preventive measures mm. uh, in terms of keeping people out of out of crime which is a big one, um, educating people, like education so so powerful um, and these councils are really, really struggling. Some have gone into um, into bankruptcy because they just can't fund their services anymore. And these are essential services. They take your bins out, they repair your roads. Like these are really, really essential. And it is really, really disheartening to see or to hear from people that they don't necessarily associate that with austerity, associate mm-hmm. that with the previous government. And yeah, I just wish a lot more people knew about it.
0: Oh, 100% I saw a news report really recently I think it was yesterday that crime's gone up 12% over yeah. the past couple of years um, mm-hmm. and with the cost of living crisis as well like it's understandable that people are turned into more desperate measures to be able to just you know pay their bills whatever it is and obviously we're in a cost of living crisis now which has been caused again because of you know, where did the cost of living crisis begin? Was it short-term effective, the war in Ukraine? Or is this also something that has been building up over the past couple of years? What what do you think?
1: The thing is, with austerity, it's basically cut our services to as low as possible without people starting to really, really get angry. And then you've got this cost of living crisis from inflation, which is a global issue. It's not just in the UK. But the war in Ukraine, which has... um, really really raised i'm sure everyone knows um gas and electricity prices but it's not like we were totally unaware this could happen we should have been prepared for this we should have been investing in renewables in gas storage because we still use a lot of gas like as much as it would be good to go fully green fully um electric in terms of feeding and things like that the vast majority of homes are currently running on gas um and we need to implement um, storage facilities and things like that. But we could have also installed heat pumps, installed insulation. And these things should have happened when interest rates were low in uh, post-financial crisis. We should have really invested in infrastructure there. But now interest rates are rising back up again. It costs more to invest because we'll need to pay more back. And we've kind of lost that opportunity, which is really, really... Really disappointing because we could have done so much. Um, so uh, Obama, for example, um, he implemented a stimulus plan. Was it the best plan ever? Definitely not. But was it austerity? Also, no. It was it was a different approach and an approach I would have liked Labour to take uh, to have taken in 2010 if we did get elected. Um, so that that is really really disappointing.
0: But Alex, we have a new prime minister now. Yep. So, you know, what should be our expectations? Is Rishi going to be able to come in and make those changes that we need and, like, quote-unquote, save the day? What's your expectations of him?
1: Yeah, so Rishi Sunak. He's very fiscally <laughs> conservative. He's very balanced. Understandably the books so,
0: though. I mean, yeah. he's a, like, almost a billionaire.
1: Yeah, yeah. So that that is different from Liz Truss, though, because she was more a conservative in the image of Ronald Reagan. So a lot of people associate um, Thatcher with Reagan and the effects of their um, governments were very similar um, in terms of unemployment went up um, in attempts to keep inflation down. Um, But Reagan, unlike Thatcher, was happy to spend, spend, spend in terms of cutting taxes and not worry about the... The um, balance sheet there, where Margaret Thatcher was very, very strict in terms of we're not spending any more because we don't want to raise any taxes, so we'll keep it nice and balanced to a lot of people's detriment because the services got cut, people mm. um, were thrown out of jobs, especially where I'm from in the northeast, and I expect the same in, in Liverpool. We've got a deep hatred of uh, Margaret Thatcher, um, so Rishi Sunak's more a Thatcher um, Thatcherite where. Um, Liz Truss was more of a Reaganite. Um, So there there is a considerable difference there. But in terms of public services, I think we're getting the same outcome, basically. Rishi Sunak's not happy to spend money on public services. And the money that we're currently spending, unlike Truss, needs to be found somewhere. So where is that found under Rishi Sunak? It's found in, in cutting things, basically, because... He's not willing to put taxes up to a reasonable, significant degree. Um, so that it falls on spending um, and that spending will be benefits. It will be universal credit. credit. It will be public services. I get really angry. You can put me here in my voice no. about this. yeah. Because if universal credit isn't uplifted this winter with inflation, yeah, people are going to be losing out on hundreds of pounds, hundreds of pounds to people who don't have hundreds of pounds at yeah. the moment where's yeah. that coming from but they, they're not going to be able to pay their heating bills
0: it's no, it's I, really it, really serious it, it morally doesn't make sense that you would take from people that have less yeah it just doesn't make sense
1: yeah they could uplift benefits to uh to my happy surprise um and i could be proven wrong here but Because Rishi Sunak's so fiscally responsible, in quotation marks, if they decide to do that, the money will need to be found elsewhere in tax rises. I can't see them doing that, because it's a bad look for conservatives, isn't it? Tax rises, they always say Labour's the party of taxes. So when they tax themselves or raise their taxes, it basically defeats their own argument. So they're very unwilling to do that. That's basically a red line for them in a lot of uh, cases.
0: Um based on, I mean, p- polls have their own issues. But based on the latest polls that I've seen, we see that the Conservatives basically have no chance if there was a general election held. And I know that a lot of uh, members of the Labour Party, Labour MPs, were calling for a general election, probably for the reason that they know they get elected. I'm personally cynical. I don't think there's any hope of a general election. But what do you think? Do you think enough pressure can be applied?
1: I think... Realistically, no, I don't don't think there will be. Um, maybe under under trust, if they kept trust for long enough, there would be enough uh, conservative mm-hmm. MPs to vote for one because they they couldn't stand it any longer. But you have to remember, a lot of these conservative MPs were elected in 2019. What happened in 2019? Conservatives gained a lot of seats that were traditionally Labour. And even in a level-pegging general election, they're going to lose those seats. It doesn't need to be a landslide for Labour to gain a lot of seats there. So what incentive do they have to call for a general election? They want to put it off as much as possible for as long as possible, um, just so they (laughs) remain MPs for longer, basically.
0: And obviously,
1: the the polling looks terrible. That goes without saying.
0: Yeah, 100%. Um, Yeah, I mean straight up they're going to lose their jobs so yeah you know it's understandable that they would push for longer and you know we've spoken a lot about the Conservative Party and I'm sure we'll circle back to them but because we operate with a a two-party system in the UK we obviously have what we would hope strong opposition and are were doing enough of that I think they've been strong enough as an opposition party.
1: Yeah so this is the uh, million dollar question within Labour circles. Whether you agree or not with Labour's offer in the 2019 election, the voters rejected us overwhelmingly. and That was really hard to see, but it it is just a fact. And I think everyone within um, the Labour movement needs to come to terms with this. And I think a lot of people have, to be honest. Um, So I think, yeah, yeah.
0: Why do you think the public rejected the Labour manifesto in 2019?
1: There was two main reasons. The, I think they're equally weighted. Um, or th- I'll change that to three. There's three main reasons. The first was Brexit. Labour yeah. was in a terrible, terrible position. They tried to equivocate between a second, uh, sorry, uh, like a Remain-type position and a, leave, uh, a a position that would persuade Leave voters to also vote for them. And that was settled with a second referendum, which I supported, um but the, the general public didn't they, they were sick of brexit whether they supported it or not they were sick of the hearing about it on the news every single night sick of having arguments with family members about it at the dinner table so they wanted to move on and i think the conservatives offer of let's get brexit done those three words get brexit done was very very appealing to people even though it was ideologically the opposite of what I believed in, um, so they ran a great campaign. They didn't talk about issues very much; they just talked about Brexit. Um, so that was really, really um, important to the election. The second reason is uh, Corbyn's unpopularity. So Corbyn was actually quite popular in 2017, but as time went on, especially people where I live in in the northeast and in former industrial towns people didn't really like Corbyn. Um, I don't want to speak for everyone, but people went from really believing that he had something to offer in 2017 to getting tired, whether that's the media or his own um, political faux pas. You can argue about that. But people really did go off him by the time of the 2019 election. And the third reason is the manifesto was badly messaged. It was people weren't very good at packaging all these great policies, in my opinion, such as um, uh, nationalising the uh, railways. Very, very good policy. That was in 2017 and hopefully in the next manifesto as well. Stormer has committed to that, so that's a good thing. But it was basically policy after policy after policy after policy. And people just didn't believe that Labour would do this and... To be fair, if Labour went into government, they probably couldn't do it. They definitely couldn't do it with COVID um, going on in the background. Um, so I think what's really important is it doesn't matter how radical you are, but really focus on maybe five or six policies that are like very, yeah. very encompassing in terms of society. Um, but they are very clear to vote as what you stand for and what you are trying to... Um, Trying to um, show as your party platform.
0: I'm I feel like I should make a case for Bojo, you know, because <laughs> I. Please do. A lot, of, a lot of the time when I was thinking about this, and especially people that I've spoken to that voted considerable, what I've seen on the news, people just loved Boris. I could not understand it at all. The boomers went crazy. <laughs> <laughs> why? Why was he so? Why was he the right person in 2019 for them?
1: Yeah, so I focused on ha- why Labour lost, but the, there is also why the Conservatives won. Um, so I've mentioned Brexit, but also Boris Johnson was slightly more popular than uh, Jeremy Corbyn, but not by much. If you do look at that, a lot of people really didn't like him, even those who voted Conservative. Um, like people in the I'm going to say in the north again because I'm currently at university in in Durham and I'm from Northumberland, so I've got a lot of experience with being in the north. I think a lot of people saw past his persona. He was different from Cameron. He did have a more and Theresa May, for that matter. He, he did. He was. He is quite entertaining, similar to Trump. Trump is entertaining. Um, he's just really, really terrible. But they were willing to see past his. Um, Gaffs, if you want to call them that that's been quite kind to him his uh, racism is homophobia because they wanted to get on with Brexit and um, they thought he was would do a good job, he, he sounded quite strong which is quite important he sounded like he would get it done because that's all he talked about um, so I think it's important not to underestimate the effect that had
0: hundred percent. Let's go back to the original question then about if Labour are doing enough in opposition. Um, and you were saying that obviously this is an internal debate among the Labour Party and I'm sure the members. Yeah. So could you kindly complete your answer?
1: Yeah, yeah. So I think has done a good job at um, persuading the voters we're not like the party we were in 2019, for good or for bad. Mm. Um, I think most people can see that now, whether you're really interested in politics or not. Um and, yeah, he's shown himself to be quite intelligent, competent, and, frankly, also quite boring. I think we could all probably say that. He gets asked this question, and he really, really hates it. Um, but, yeah, crucially, above all, appearing different to Corbyn. So so-called boring, left-leaning opposition leaders have had some success in the last year. So we've got Olaf Scholz in Germany. So he succeeded Angela Merkel. He's seen as quite boring, but also... safe pair of hands and I think that's quite important after multiple crises such as COVID such as whatever happened with Boris Johnson that led to his downfall especially what happened to Liz Trust um I think people are starting to feel like we just want some stability in our lives which is important for a lot of people um understandingly and also Anthony Albanese in Australia he's he was quite boring um (laughs) I don't want to be too unkind to these people because they're they're obviously doing something right. But uh, Labour won for the first time in, in years in Australia. So yeah, so that's his prose. What, what he's doing well, basically. It is really, really frustrating to see a lack of opposition um, on important issues such as the crime bill. Um, so Labour are broadly against the crime and sentencing bill, but there's a couple of things where they abstained, where they um, voted for... Certain amendments, and that's really frustrating to see. Especially as from progressives such as myself, I'm very anti-authoritarian when it comes to a lot of these things, and yeah, it, it's disheartening to say the least. Um, and it's sometimes important to change and lead the conversation rather to, rather than trying to appease people. Um, but it's it's getting a balance between that because you know the general public are quite middle of the road as a as a section. Of society, the the median voter is quite middle of the road. That doesn't mean they're centrist, for example, but they they're all their opinions mixed up and jumbled up is is about the centre of the political spectrum. Um, so this is exemplified in um, so the lack of opposition, I should say, is exemplified in Labour's tolerance for um, transphobia in the party, which I really really take to heart, which is totally unacceptable. It's something that we should be really ashamed of in the party because we do have transphobic MPs and there's a collective we, inaction like, there. They're yeah, 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 very explicitly um, transphobic um, and that's that's horrible to see because it's an equality thing rather mm-hmm. than anything else. Policy we can disagree on but we shouldn't be disagreeing about something as fundamental 100%. as human rights. Um, so when it comes to policy though, changing, uh, changing tack there... I think the announcements at Labour Conference, which I attended in Liverpool, um, are very encouraging. Um, so, we've got um, commitments to nationalisation of um, the railways. We've got commitments to set up a, an independent um, energy firm that's uh, owned by the government, spending um, £28 billion pounds a year on green, uh, on basically a Green New Deal, a green industrial strategy, which over 10 years, it's 300 billion. It's it's a, it's a lot of money, which is needed, by the way, <laughs> for the, the climate crisis. We can't avoid that. Yeah, there's just a, a lot of policies that have been announced that are generally good. They're very social democratic policies that I like to see. Um, and I think the voters like that. As much as the, the Conservative Party talk about net zero being bad, people are quite green nowadays. They've been told that climate crisis is worth worrying about and it is and they want to see the government do something about it and I think Labour are in a good position to do that so their slogan in September was a greener fairer future yeah I think most people can (laughs) agree with that so yeah I I was really positive during conference there was a general feel of the party uh, coming together to to win and it did feel like a a, a opposition and waiting that we're going to be the next uh, government pretty soon.
0: I mean, it's about downtime. It's about downtime. Yeah. <laughs> I, I was thinking about like the past twelve years and if I've seen a marked difference. Obviously, it's difficult when you're kind of growing up because you don't become. I di- wasn't, didn't really become that politically engaged until I was about sixteen or so. Anyway, yeah. but I think even since then. And especially my parents, what they've noticed—how much stuff is like, yeah, again underfunded. The homelessness is worse. Yeah. Um, food can, banks. Oh my terrible. god! I literally like, I was I was literally just on a walk, and there was this big commotion, and I was like, "What? What is this?" And it was like a food bank in the middle of the street. That's the only place they could set it up, and Mm-mm. the queue was remarkable. It was yeah. shocking. It was really, really bad. Yeah, yeah, so the thing
1: about food banks are it's terrible that we need to, to have them in the twenty-first century in a wealthy country like the UK. But at least you can give food out where heating, for example, you can't give out heat um to heat people's houses in the winter. Like we think it's bad now, it's quite chilly on, on some nights in October, but in January, after after Christmas, in February, it's gonna be so, so cold. And um martin lewis actually the uh, mo- uh, money saving expert money
0: saving expert
1: <laughs> yeah yeah he's um commissioned a report into these warm spaces such as these libraries that have been closed down so we don't have many of them left such as community centers these government or council run uh, buildings and organizations should be a safe haven for people who just can't afford heating. And I'm not talking about people in absolute poverty here. I'm talking about millions of people who won't be able to afford heating. Because you have to remember that energy price cap, and this is not stated enough in the media or by the government, is a cap on the average spend by a household. It's not in terms of the absolute maximum. So people can still go over that it's not capping, the it's only capping the unit price, not the absolute spend. Um, so people will be owing thousands of pounds this winter.
0: Oh, it's so shocking. I have two initial thoughts. One, again, is like so important to consider that this is working people, you know, it's, it's people that have worked hard their whole lives, nurses, you know, teaching assistants, anyone and yeah. everyone it's affecting. Um, and the second one is that, even if you're the most frugal you can be during this winter, heating your home is also a home maintenance issue. If your yep. pipes freeze and burst, you're, you're fucked, you know? Mm-hmm. And I think, in regard to the spaces, obviously it's great that people are being given options, but are we really, are we really here where we're telling people that they can't, that they should leave their own home to find somewhere else to go warm?
1: Yeah. It's either that or people will die. its uh, I don't mean to be too negative, but we are yeah, in a really dire situation here.
0: Yeah, yeah, it's shocking. Um, and enough is not being done, <laughs> which we already know. But what what can we do as individuals, do you think, in regard to like demanding more?
1: I think it's just worth talking about it more than anything. I don't think we talk about politics enough. It's the old... Um, the old saying, don't talk about politics or religion at the dinner table. Do talk about politics. Talk about, so this is a, a bit of a tangent, but people's salaries. There's a tradition that you don't share your salary. What happens when you don't do that? Women get paid less. Um, pe- uh, minorities get paid less. Because we just don't know what people are earning Um. And if people talk about that more, we can collectivise. We can unionise. We can um, all argue for collective um, like raise basically. Um, so that's really important. It's very simple to do. Just talk about it to friends, to family. Don't be ashamed that you can't pay your energy bills this winter. Don't be ashamed. So there's a there's a housing crisis in Durham um, at the moment. It's it's been like this for a number of years, but the I think I don't want to give out um, particular amounts, um, but the average house price is a lot more than the average maintenance loan. And that's without any other essentials such as food, for example, Uh, just any, any minor luxuries as well. Like people are going to be living in, uh, in poverty um, because of these, um, because of this housing crisis. And it's important to, to say it to people, I, I actually can't afford this. And, and if people just talk about that more, maybe there would be an increase in consciousness in terms of, actually, this isn't right. This mm. isn't right as a country, as a society, and we mm. can improve that. Um, yeah, so I, I, I think that's important. Um I think um engaging in political action, whether that's protest, whether that's, um joining a political party that's not going to solve the issue in the first instance but it is going to uh, going to strengthen strengthen the opposition it's going to not just the labor party opposition just the opposition to the government above anything email your mp i think it's really really surprising like how much of an effect that has not as an individual necessarily but if you get all your friends all your family If MPs receive thousands of emails in a month about one issue, they can't look away from that. Yes, they might not go ahead and do anything about it, especially if you've got a Conservative MP, but they can't ignore it. In their minds, they're thinking, thousands of people have emailed me about this. Not that many people actually go to vote. If those thousands of people vote against me, I'm going to lose my job. So I need to at least make overtures to the problem, to some solutions. So this isn't necessarily that radical of solutions. I am not saying don't pay your energy bill, although if you if you can't afford it, don't, don't pay it. You need you need heat in this winter, but yeah, just these basic political um, political advice basically will will put pressure on the government, and ultimately, I think the energy price cap was a good idea, but it needs to be far more. Um, far-reaching and we can't stop here we need to keep demanding more and and yeah so talk to people unionize join the union um, that's really important so I'm a member of a general union but also like a teaching union to do with academia so the UCU and universities uh, that's really important they can help you um, join a tenants union, Union that's really important, especially if you're renting, especially in a city such as London or even in Durham, which is has a housing shortage. You should know your rights, whether that's rights to do with um, heating, whether that's rights to do with telling your landlord, this needs to be fixed. And no, I'm not waiting a week. You need to do this now. And don't be afraid to challenge authority, basically. 100%,
0: 100%. I remember as well a lot a lot of times online activists will give you draft emails Mm -hmm. and I remember once there was an issue I think it's something to do with women's rights um and this activist was like listen you've got your I've got your draft email just insert your MP's name and your own name at the bottom and email this to to them so a lot of people will make emails accessible that you don't have to think about anything it's well written you just you know put in the email and your details and I remember I got like a letter back from the mm-hmm. MPB, like, I've, you know, I've read your email and probably came from their PA and whatnot. But yeah. um, it, it, it is, it's it is. I agree with you. I think if you can get a group of you to really go and, you know, make sure that these issues are being heard and holding people accountable, that's a long way to go. But another thing that I wanted to ask you was... British people I, I was thinking about the difference between British people and French people because French people go to the streets. If they're not I mean, I was looking at the um the protests that the French were doing recently um based on their own, I think it was their own rise in gas and electricity prices, and they were on the streets, they were up against the police. Um, and British people are not like that. Well, What do you, yeah, do you think we're just not like, why why aren't we like that? Should we be like that?
1: Yeah, following on from what I said before, I think we should demand our rights. They're really important. And a lot of the time, if you form a collective effort, it's far more likely to succeed succeed than an individual action. So an example of this is in PhD stipends. So someone... um, organized a lot of people to sign an open letter to the funding agency um, for PhDs, the UKRI, and it got 10,000 signatures. And they did something about it. They raised stipends in line with inflation. Mm. Before someone did that, people were just emailing them um, randomly. So they might have received 100 emails. They don't care. They're just going to send a quick email back saying, sorry, there's nothing we can do. But when they knew there was thousands of people behind this movement and we can do something about it, we can remove our labour if necessary in terms of striking, Um, they started to care. And I think that's an example Mm -hmm. of collectivising, whether that's in a protest, uh, such as what the French like to do, which I, I think has won them a lot of rights. If you look at the pension age in France, if you look at the working conditions in France, if you look at the working hours in France, um they are very different from the rest of europe because people demand they are well treated at work they demand that they can have time for leisure like we shouldn't we, sh- we sh- should enjoy life as much as this conversation sometimes has taken a turn for the 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 worst like there's a lot to there's a lot to enjoy in life and we should be aware of that and to protest, to um, sign petitions as a bare minimum, to vote. So a lot of people on the left very much say voting doesn't matter. Why bother? I'm in a safe seat. Um, the Labour opposition isn't good enough. It's not left wing enough. Um, why should I bother? And my answer to that is um, look at the policies for one we can do much better as a country Labour's policies aren't the best thing I've ever seen but they're a hell of a lot better than what the government's currently doing and um, your one vote almost definitely won't change the outcome of an, of your constituency which definitely, almost definitely won't change the outcome of an election but if you tell your friends to vote if you virtue signal in a way which has got a bad rap but Virtue signal is effective um, in terms of spreading good virtues, spreading virtues such as please vote, please complain about that, please raise awareness, please stand up against racism, against sexism, um, against um, anti LGBT hate. Like it's important for us to do that because fundamentally society is made up of people and their opinions, and we're going to be the ruling generation in in a couple of decades time we're going to be the leaders of the world and yeah we need to raise consciousness of these issues and that might take the form of sharing an instagram story which always gets a lot of hate but people aren't doing it like i don't see it that often obviously you got a big um, movement during black lives matter which was really really positive to see
0: mm. did
1: people follow through with those actions not all the time But it got people thinking, and from that thinking, there was some action there. Why? Why isn't that the same with all issues that we face, that society faces? So, as much as Instagram stories get a lot of hate, I just wish more people did it for one, Um, and then that might encourage people to do something a bit more effective.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's interesting. I, I do think performative activism gets somewhat of a bad rep, but I. I would say ninety nine, if not a hundred percent, of the articles that people share on their story or issues that are going on, I will look at. Yeah. But as a bare minimum, mm-hmm. I will be like, "Oh, someone who I like has raised this issue. I better look at it. I better, yeah, myself up. You know. I think um, when
1: performative action is bad, performative um, activism is bad, is when corporations signal that they're progressive but are actually so an example of this is disney for example they signal that they're progressive but they donate to republican candidates who are very homophobic who are Mm. very um, anti-progressive and that's performative so they're signaling good values which might have a net positive but they're also they're also practically committing a lot of harm when they donate to these really really horrible people in the US and I think that's where it's bad where if yeah. you just if all you're doing is sharing stuff that's better than nothing
0: especially if you're like care about these issues that you're sharing and you want to raise attention yeah. to them mm-hmm. um, again yeah there's everyone should just share with them. It's hard because I, I remember listening to a different podcast and it was talking about how people kind of have a threshold for things. You've yeah. only got a certain amount of things that you can really care about because mm-hmm. there's so many things in the world to be outraged about that sometimes you know people like, oh, you shared this story about, you know, climate, about the climate crisis, but did you know that there's human rights abuses and, you know, this yeah, yeah. You didn't talk about that. Um.
1: I think it's important to remember not everyone is political as you or I. Maybe it's important to specify what you share. So don't just, Mm. reason awareness is good, but if there's something like a a really good actionable point you can share, for example, voting, like you do it once, you share it around the time of a general election, people can look at it and say, yes, I will do that. That's in my brain now. That's sorted whether that's signing a petition, oh, I saw so, your story, that was really interesting, I'll sign the petition now, I'm done, or joining the protest, that's maybe a bit bigger, but it's something you can do. People are reading it and deciding to take action upon that point, point. and it's very, very specific, and I think that's also important as well as raising awareness.
0: Definitely. So I have two final questions for you. The penultimate one's a little bit controversial, but yep. who cares? I'm going for it. Um, there was an article written by Serena Smith, and the title was Nation of Bootlickers, Why Do English People Love Oppression? Do you think we just love to suffer here in the UK? Like, is this why we've been in austerity for 12 years? Because we're just like, oh, you know, it's just a human condition to suffer, you know?
1: <laughs> I think there's definitely something to this. I think you often hear older people say, Oh, we managed back then, so you can too. Whether that's lack of food, lack of heating, the same icicle forms formed on the the windowsill, Um, but also just generally nice things such as having a TV, having books, having a smartphone. And this is, I think, in sharp contrast to the aspirational working-class vision that our children should have better lives than ourselves. So... Mm. You hear that this from a lot of people who are in a quite privileged position, um, whether they own their own home, which a lot of people, older people do. And I think that's an interesting divide in society now. Previously, it was the middle versus working class, the rich versus the poor, um, where now it's kind of the young versus the old. And as a proxy for that, the home-owning class versus the rentier class. And I think that's is really important. And I think about that quite a lot because obviously we hear about landlords a lot, but these landlords are usually older people who have done well in the good times and are now telling young people that they shouldn't be demanding more, that they're lazy, that they're so privileged. And in many ways, we do live in a more progressive society, especially when it comes to um, like social rights and things like that. But in many other ways, we're living like in a really, really bad situation in terms of having to move house every six months because you haven't got secure housing. Having to, um, as I mentioned in in, uh, in Durham, like not being able to afford a house at all, not being able to enjoy your time as a student, as a university student. This might sound like quite privileged that you should be able to do this. But as I said before you should be able to enjoy life it's not just enough to have everything you need physically whether that's housing or food shelter like life should be enjoyable and um yeah so in terms of the working class vision I think it's in contrast to that because um like I know my parents um for sure wanted (laughs) my life to be like better than theirs like in terms of having a good education they didn't go to university where I did and I've gained so much from that in terms of being such a formative experience and yeah just because people who came before us suffered doesn't mean we also have to and we can and should demand better for our generation because we're the first ones that are worse off than our parents and as I said the an example of that which is is housing um and I think A lot of older people are unaware of the dire situation young people are in and are, at worst, willingly exacerbating the crisis because a lot of people who own their own homes don't want new houses to be built. Why? Because that lowers the price of the overall housing market and they want their house to be nice and profitable, to go up in price, to earn more and more and more profit for them not realising it's their grandchildren who aren't going to be able to afford housing. Um, so, yeah, a general, like, vision of mine is just, like, more infrastructure, more housing, people to, like, live good lives. And there's a real pushback, especially in the trust government, for example, anti-building solar farms, anti-building onshore wind, anti-building housing. We need, if there's anything we need, it's more housing, Um and yeah, I get really frustrated. Not all older people are like this, I should say, um, yeah. but they have a vested interest. It's understandable why they don't want more houses to be built. Um, it's, it doesn't take, uh, it's not rocket science to understand why they're like this. Um, but the government needs to kind of ignore, <laughs> ignore a lot of these older voters and do what the majority of the country wants. And a way to do this is to get young people to vote, and by young people i don't mean 18 year olds although they should vote i mean 18 to 35 to 45 year olds all of these people aren't owning their own house they're going from insecure housing to insecure housing they're not able to afford a deposit they're they're really suffering at the hands of of the government who's just willing unwilling to to do things they want because they don't necessarily vote in the same way older people do And that's a way to do that. I'm not saying that the next election things are going to change because young people are going to vote as much as old people, but it it will help if people are worried about, if MPs are worried that young people are going to turn out in droves, as as was seen in some constituencies in the 2017 election, where Labour's vote went up massively in student areas, for example, and Labour needs to do something to like get that turnout again um but whether it's Labour or Conservative governments should generally just think about uh doing things for the long term doing things that will benefit future generations not just the current generations that are currently voting for them and I think that's quite difficult um but I think it is achievable
0: yeah 100% two thoughts one suffering isn't inherently valuable Um, based on what you said earlier
1: 100%
0: and secondly um, yeah I'm going to enjoy my avocado toast and it's not the (laughs) that I can't afford a house so
1: yeah as you should
0: exactly Um, thank you so 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 much I've enjoyed this conversation immensely I still have one final question which is what impression would you like to leave on the world
1: the one impression I would like to leave on the world is that things don't have to be this way. We have the ability to change things for the better. And this better world will have an expanded moral circle. So this is a philosophical idea that we will care far more about suffering than we currently do, that we should care about the suffering of fellow humans, also of non-human animals. And no, we didn't get a chance to talk about um, uh, veganism and things like that. Um, But even artificial intelligence, if it comes to that, We should care about people's well-being more than we do now. Um, And it's not all about earning money. People should be able to live good lives. Um, And the key question is, are we living lives? Are we ruling societies adding to the suffering? Or are we adding to the well-being that makes humanity so, so special? And I think that's quite airy-fairy philosophically, but I think humanity and society is special and I think we should do more to, uh, to, to add to that. I think
0: that was a bit of a mic drop moment, Alex. <laughs>
1: moment.
0: Um, yeah, planet before profit. I just think, like, I mean, I know we're supposed to wrap this conversation up because it's quite a long episode, but... <laughs> like the this just like this neoliberal late capitalism stage is just draining the soul out of me i feel so fundamentally incompatible with the way that the world is is that Mm. like my mental health just like you know diving i'm just like this this surely isn't the way that the world should be you know Mm. um but thank you so much for restoring my faith in humanity again basically
1: yeah, thank you very much for having me. I really, really enjoyed it.
0: Oh, thank you. Is there anything that you want to plug or anything you want to draw people's attention to or if they want to reach out, can they find you?
1: Yeah, yeah, I'm sure you'll leave some of the, the links of the things I've mentioned. Um, yeah, so on Twitter, I'm AlexGreer99. I'm sure you'll be able to find me. But yeah, um, apart from that, uh, I hope you've enjoyed this. Um, a, a couple of parting words. Join the union. Mm-hmm. Um, join a political party. Um, it's not very expensive. I think I pay £3 a month and you get a say, uh, Sorry, £3 a year, I think. Like, <laughs> it's quite affordable. And yeah, talk to people, talk to your friends about politics. Um, it doesn't have to be these um, really high level ideas.
0: Thank you so much for listening to another episode of Impressionable and I'm very sorry it cut off at the end. We had a bit of a technical difficulty but at least it came at the very end. If you want to keep up with us, you can find us on Instagram at ImpressionablePod, so the word Impressionable and then P-O-D afterwards. Please don't forget to rate us five stars and subscribe and, you know, share wherever you want to share because we will recognize it and I will appreciate it so much say thank you thank you again for Alex for being such a great guest and I will see you next week bye